0: on November 26, 1958, a man who was a follower of Jesus Christ, but he was also a professor of English at Oxford, excuse me, Cambridge University. He was asked this question, "Do you care for the Sermon on the Mount?" "Do you care for the Sermon on the Mount?" And C.S. Lewis responded in a letter this way, "Quote: As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here Means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can be like, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. This is indeed. To be at ease in Zion. Amos 6.1 This morning, we are continuing in our studies of the gospel according to Luke. And we find ourselves this morning face to face with another one of Jesus's sledgehammers. And so, Christian, let me just to give you a heads up. Prepare to be knocked flat on your face. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin reading there in verse 36. This is what Holy Scripture says. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will not. You will be forgiven and give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's I. Brothers and sisters, in this passage, Jesus warns us of three deadly spiritual dangers that his disciples face. In this passage, we discover three deadly dangers we face as followers of Jesus. And my prayer is that we would all heed Christ's warnings concerning these dangers that we would repent of our own sins and that we would find refuge and rest in the one whose mercy knows no end and the one who came into the world to save sinners. Number one, number one, first danger, beware of a critical spirit. Beware of a critical spirit. Verses 36 to thirty-eight, In these opening few verses, Jesus cautions his followers, his disciples, beware of a critical spirit. Now notice, Jesus gives this command to be merciful even as your father is merciful, verse 36. And then Jesus goes on to explain what that mercy looks like with a series of commands. He gives a pair of negative commands. In verse 37, and he gives a pair of positive commands. And those four commands, positive and negative, explain and illuminate what it looks like for followers of Jesus to show mercy. And what Jesus is getting at here is not judging in general. Jesus is getting after a critical spirit. He's warning us about judgmentalism. Look at verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. A critical spirit judges and condemns others mercilessly. So notice those two words, judge and condemn. Do you see that? These are legal terms. So the image that we're supposed to call to mind is that when we have a critical spirit, we are acting as the prosecuting attorney, the jury and the judge in condemning other people. A critical spirit pronounces guilt regardless of whether or not there's evidence. So when Jesus says judge not lest you be judged, this is probably one of the verses that is not or it's known by people who aren't followers of Jesus, Right. Have you ever talked to somebody about sin and the response is, hey, look, Jesus said, judge not, right? And oftentimes by that, that, that interpretation, the thought is nobody can tell me how to live my life, least of all you. But when Jesus says judge not, he's not saying that we never render any forms of judgment. So how many of you are parents? Raise your hand. Parents. Okay. Um, as parents or grandparents. You, you have to make judgments all the time, especially if you have multiple children, when you're figuring out who stole the toy first, right? You, ha- you have to render judgment there as a parent. If you're a teacher, you have to render judgment. I mean, grades just got turned in, right? You render judgment on grade turn-in day, right? Elders have to navigate the, the often murky issues related to church discipline. There's, there's a judgment that has to be made. In the following verses, Jesus is going to tell us to beware of false teachers. Well, in order for you to obey that, you have to be able to discern, is this person a false teacher or not? So judgment in that sense is required. It's also commanded. In John 7, 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with what? True judgment, right judgment. So you're called by Jesus to judge in that sense. But what Jesus is forbidding here is merciless, uncharitable judgment, critical judgment that comes out of a critical spirit. At our elders meeting other night, Randy summarized this posture, this kind of twofold posture helpfully. He said this, quote, Think critically without being critical. Think critically without being critical. Another, another wise man, Ken Sandy, put it like this. Jesus is warning us, listen, from looking for the worst in others. You have a critical spirit when you're looking for the worst and assuming the worst in others. In 1 Corinthians thirteen seven. We're told this about love. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Y'all with me? So wake up. amen? Amen. All right. That means that love, it hopes for the best and it believes for the best. It's hoping for the best and believing for the best. That's what love, that's the posture that love takes. Critical spirit is the opposite. A critical spirit hopes for the worst and believes the worst. It's the opposite of love. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, A critical spirit gets satisfaction in finding faults and blemishes in others. A critical spirit is always expecting them, always on the lookout for them, and almost always disappointed if it doesn't find them. Is any of this hitting home? I had to repent on the way to church this morning. So... It's been a hard, hard passage to think about this week. I want you to notice, look at verse 37. Jesus buttresses these commands by giving these future tense consequences of this type of judgment. He says, verse 37, judge not, and then notice the future tense, and you will not be judged. You see that? Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now, I think there's a a twofold aspect of this. There's a, 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 a kind of a near short term that Jesus is talking about. But then I ultimately think he's thinking about the long term. So short term, if you're not a judgmental person, if you're not constantly condemning other people, generally speaking, others around you will show mercy to you. They, they won't constantly condemn you. So in the short term, uh, that will happen. I think Jesus, though, is actually pointing us to The last day to the day of judgment. I think Jesus is helping us to look to the end, and He's reminding us that the person who judges others critically with a critical spirit invites the judgment of God on the last day. Listen, on judgment day, you don't want condemnation, you want mercy. We will stand before the judgment seat of God. And what Jesus is saying is live your life backwards from that day. Live backwards. If you want assurance of mercy on that day, then lavish mercy on others today. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty six, I tell you at the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Christian, this afternoon, this week, ask those who are closest to you, spouse, roommate, neighbor, friend, children. Am I critical? Am I hypercritical? Am I someone who's judgmental? Am I someone who is quick to condemn, quick to assume the worst? Am I someone, as I look at my day, as I look at my week, am I using my words to edify, encourage, and build up and speak the truth in love? Or am am I someone who's quick to point out the problems that I perceive in others? Just as a hint, we tend, at least I am, we tend... To condemn in others the sin that we struggle with ourselves. So what's the ultimate danger? You're thinking, well, this seems like a danger, but what's the, what's the root of this danger? Here's the theological root of the critical spirit. So if you're not paying attention, listen to me right now. The ultimate danger of a critical spirit is this. It reveals an idolatrous desire To take the place of God. The one who is the judge of all the earth. God is the one who judges. God is the one ultimately who condemns. When we judge critically, we usurp the place and authority of God Almighty. James knew this. Our Lord's brother, James, said this. There is only one lawgiver and judge one, one. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James 4.12. So just remind yourself, brothers and sisters, most of the time, it's just not our place to judge. You are off. You may be in circumstances where you have to judge. You're called to make a, a render a judgment. But most of the time, most of the things that come up in our lives, it's not our place to judge. We don't have all the facts. We live in a time where we can spread our views and our half-baked opinions around the world at a, with a click of a button. But listen, ask yourself, is it my place to judge? And if it's not in obedience to Jesus Christ in this verse, just keep your thoughts to yourself. You will, you will, you will be grateful that you did on the day of judgment. So instead of judging critically, Jesus actually beckons us in verse 37 B to judge charitably. Look what he says. So don't look at me, look at your Bibles instead of condemning and judging. Jesus says, verse 37 B forgive. And then he gives these consequences and you will be forgiven. Give And it will be given to you. Now, this verse, verse 38, is often quoted by false by false teachers, prosperity gospel teachers, which it's no it's no gospel at all. They'll quote this verse and apply it to financial giving. Give to my ministry and you will have this abundance. Right. That's what they say. And they'll say, say look, look what it says. Give and you will receive back good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That'll be put in your lap for with the measure you use it, it will be measure back to you in context, brothers and sisters. Jesus is talking about giving mercy, giving grace. He's talking about how we show mercy like our father in heaven gives. That's that's what he's talking about. A charitable spirit forgives others generously and generously gives grace and mercy and the benefit of the doubt. So think about it. it's the opposite of a critical spirit. A generous charitable spirit gives others the benefit of the doubt. So in light of the lavish mercy we have received, Jesus wants us to be generous in forgiving others who have wronged us and lavish in our Giving of grace and mercy to others. And he gives this picture of, I love this picture of, imagine you're buying corn or grain at the, at the you know, I guess, at the marketplace. And, and the, you want to get a full measure, right? And, and the person selling you the grain pours it into the bag and shakes it and pours some more and shakes it. And it's just, it's, it's up to the brim. And that's the picture of mercy that he promises those who show mercy. So brothers and sisters, what does this mean for our church? What does this mean? What, is the, what do these verses mean for us as a church? Well, first, a church is a congregation of baptized and forgiven sinners. But we know from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, read it this afternoon, that churches have always struggled with judgmentalism. We are quick to pass judgment on others, how do we know that? Because Paul says in Romans fourteen ten, why do you pass judgment on your brothers? This has been a problem from the beginning. It's not like all of a sudden the church just got judgmental. This is this is something we constantly, every generation, we have to deal with. And in our church covenant, this is what we promise to do for one another. We promise, based on Scripture, we will show perfect courtesy. Towards all, Speaking the truth in love to one another and avoiding quarrels, gossip and slander. We will be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Brothers and sisters, especially if you are a member of this church, listen to me. More than your service. More than your sacrifice, the Lord of the universe wants you to show mercy. You hear me? Hosea 6.6. Hosea 6, the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Amen. I desire the knowledge of God rather than your burnt offerings. So show mercy to the brothers and sisters that you have covenanted together. To serve and to care for. So as we read these verses. We need to respond. Because of God's mercy. His mercy and kindness ought to lead us as a church to repentance. So Christian repent. Repent of your critical spirit this morning. Repent of gossip and slander. Repent of your condemnation of others. Repent of looking for the worst in your spouse or in your kids. Repent of self righteous judging. Repent of usurping the authority of God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We're Christian. That's the first danger Jesus calls you. That's the main point of this passage. Repent of your critical spirit. Second danger that's deadly for disciples of Jesus. Number two, Jesus also calls us to beware of following false teachers. Beware of following false teachers. Verses 39 to 40. Look what he says. He told them a parable. Now, you'll notice this parable is going to extend all the way down to the end of the sermon, but we're just going to start with the first part this morning. He told them a parable and he asked two, rhetor- two rhetorical questions that assume a negative answer, right? Can a blind man lead a blind man? Well, the answer to that is no, right? Will they not also fall into a pit? Well, of course they will, right? And so Jesus is stating the obvious. If a blind man is leading a blind person, another blind man, they're going to end up in a ditch. They're going to end up in a pit. They're going to end up in a hole because they don't know where they're going. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you choose to follow someone who can't see where they're going, it's not going to turn out, for, turn out well for you either. And Jesus applies this directly to our discipleship. Look at verse 40. Verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will become like his teacher. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying this, and this is important. You become like whom you follow. You become like whom you follow. In the Old Testament scriptures, it's similar to a truth. You become like what you worship, either for restoration or for ruin. Remember the people of Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai that Moses is getting the the Ten Commandments. They're down there making a golden calf. Remember that? A golden calf. And right after that, Moses comes down, rebukes them, and he notices they've become what? Stiff-necked. Just like a calf. They became like what they worshipped. You you become like what you worship. And Jesus is saying here, you become like whom you follow. Therefore, be careful. Be careful. Who you follow. Notice there, Jesus says, the blind leading the blind. If you read the rest of Luke, if you read other parts of the Gospels, Jesus uses that phrase, the blind, to not only refer to those who are physically blind that he heals, but he also refers to those who are spiritually blind, namely the Pharisees. So, for example, In Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees, these false teachers in Israel, he calls them blind five times. In Matthew 15, 14, Jesus says this. Listen, it's exactly what he says here. Listen, he says to his disciples, leave them. That is the the Pharisees. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. You see the connection here? So now you might be thinking, well, there's no Pharisees around anymore. Well, let me just give you a brief resume of fair of, of false teachers The Phariseeism still abounds and we need to beware of those whom we follow. So listen, let me give you really briefly some some things that you can put down that signal that you're following a false teacher. Number one, false teachers fail to understand grace. Jesus is going to say, or he has already said in the gospel of Luke, remember, they grumbled at Jesus because he said, why are you eating with tax collectors and what sinners? And Jesus said, those who are well don't need a physician. Right. I came to call the not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus understood grace. The Pharisees didn't. Number two, false teachers preach, but they do not practice. Mark 20, 23 two. They preach, Jesus said, but they do not practice. Number three, false teachers bind consciences with man-made commandments. They add to God's word. They don't just take away God's word. They add to God's word. Matthew 15, 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Number four, false teachers love money, not God. The Pharisees, we're told in Luke 16, 14, were lovers of money. We're told in Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus said, you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed. We'll see later on Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the entire ministry of Jesus, he had access to the money bag. And he was stealing Number five, and finally, false teachers lead others to eternal ruin. Look at how this sermon in in Luke 6 ends. Look Look down at verse 49. Look at how it ends. But the one who hears and does not do them, that is his words, the words of Jesus, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, the reason I'm stressing this, brothers and sisters, you may may think I know all this already. But listen, I'm speaking to a group of people that you may not be here in six months. Well, not because you're going to die. You may die. I don't know. I hope you don't die. But what I mean is we live in such a transient area. You may be here for the next 60 years, and I hope you are. But if in the, next, in the next six months or the next six years, you transfer someplace else because of a job or family or whatever, you need to know what you need to find in a church and in pastors. When Paul was writing to Timothy, the, right before Paul was executed, he said to Timothy, preach the word. Remember that? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4, preach the word. And then he tells, P, uh, he tells Timothy why. Why should you preach the word, the word that's inspired by God and profitable? Why? He says for verse three, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate teachers for themselves to suit their own passions. What, what, what Paul is getting at is that as teachers, just like the Israelites of old in Jeremiah's day, we are inclined to get people to tell us what we want to hear. So you need to make sure you find a church that teaches you things that are in the scriptures that maybe you don't want to hear. Because that's what, that's God's way of loving you. The elders of this church want to help you. If, if you're having a trans transition someplace else, we want to help you find a church where you can hear the word of God. I want to speak just for the elders to say it's a joy serving. It is a joy of serving in a church with folks who love the word of God. It's a joy to teach the word of God to you because you love it. You want to hear it. And it's a joy. And so we aspire to be preachers and teachers who point you to Jesus. So in many ways, a faithful pastor is like John the Baptist who point to Jesus. That's what John the Baptist. His ministry was. Jesus, look at Jesus. That's what pastors should do. Not pointing, we're not preaching ourselves. We're pointing you to the one who has the words of eternal life. So Jesus is the only one who can lead the blind all the way to glory without falling into a pit. Amen? Amen. Jesus alone gives sight to the blind. Jesus alone is able to open our rebellious blind eyes. So we might see his glory and his grace in the gospel. Yes. Jesus alone is able to illuminate our minds by his spirit so that we understand and receive and believe and obey his word. Remember, Jesus told us he was the one who was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind. Remember, at the very end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24 Jesus is risen from the dead. He's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him. They're blind. They don't notice him, they don't recognize him. But then Jesus breaks bread with them. And then Jesus preaches himself from all the Old Testament, from the law, the prophets and the writings, remember? And we're told that their hearts were opened, their hearts began to burn within them. And we're told that their eyes were opened. That they might behold Jesus. Christian, that's your story, isn't it? Isn't that your story? That was my story. I didn't know Jesus or love Jesus. I'm reading his word and the light came on. And the Jesus that I read about became the one that I love. The one that I want to serve the rest of my life. That's what happened to you, didn't it? The eyes of your hearts were, were opened. You were blind, but now you see. We sing that in amazing grace, right? I once was what? Blind. But now I see. So beware. Beware of following false teachers that lead you away from Jesus. And instead, find a church. This church or some other church that leads you To Jesus by his spirit through the word of God. Beware of following false teachers. Last warning. Number three. And then we're going to go to the supper. Number three. Beware of your own hypocrisy. Beware of your own hypocrisy. Verses 41 and 42. Jesus gives us this one final caution. And notice he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to brothers. Okay, look what he says. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you do when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, in many ways, I think Jesus still has the Pharisees lingering in the background of his words. We know that from Luke 12 when he says about the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, namely their hypocrisy. But Jesus directs this warning against hypocrisy to the disciples, to those who are brothers. Now, a hypocrite is someone who sees, but who is spiritually farsighted. Now, children, um, I wear glasses and contacts. I'm nearsighted. And when you're nearsighted, that means like right now, if I take my glasses off, I can see my Bible but I, you all are just blurry. And that means that I can see things that are close up, but I can't see things that are far away. But someone who is farsighted, they can actually see things that are far away, but they can't see things that are close up, that are right in front of their face. And a hypocrite is spiritually farsighted. A hypocrite sees the errors and the sins in someone else perfectly clearly, they think. But they're blind. They can't see what's right in front of their face, what's right in front of their eyes. And in order to make this point, Jesus gives this ridiculous. It's it's supposed to be almost a comical illustration. Imagine someone trying to get a small splinter, a small speck of wood out of someone else's eye. The whole time they've got a huge beam of wood shooting out of their own eye. Okay. Now, in our Bibles, the ESV, it renders, uh, verse 41, it says log. Do you see that? Now, when you hear log, you may think of like a log in the fireplace. That's not the image that you should have in mind. I know some of you are builders. This word refers to a piece of heavy timber, such as a beam used in roof construction. <laughs> okay. So the image is, is, is some kind of like long, heavy ridge beam like a 20-footer coming out of my eye. And the whole time I'm trying to get close to you to take the little speck out of your eye. That's ridiculous. That's that's, that's stupid. That's, that's, That's utterly comical. Jesus is comparing something small, perhaps a small sin, with something large, perhaps a more serious sin. And so what Jesus is saying is that the hypocrite majors on the minor sins in others the whole time they're completely ignoring their own sin, which is huge. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying that you have to be perfect before you can help someone else with their sin. Okay, Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying that you can't see and help your brother with his speck until... You first remove the log out of your own eye. Jesus is saying, take care of your own sin first so that you can help someone else with theirs. Um, Jesus is not saying, hey, if you see your brother with dealing with sin, just leave him alone. That's unloving. So what Jesus is saying is that we need to repent of any and all hypocrisy. We need to repent of majoring on minors, of pointing out quickly the sins of others without dealing with ourselves. Have you ever been on an airplane? You know, at the very beginning when you're on a, on a commercial airline flight, the, 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 the flight attendant will come up and start making the speech that no one listens to, right? Remember this? If you're, if you're a flight attendant, I'm sorry. We, we never listen to what you're saying. But what they typically do, what, what I've heard that they say, is they'll say something like, okay, here's the safety instructions. And then they'll tell you, here's what you do in the emergency. The oxygen mask is going to come down, right? And what do they always tell you? Put on your oxygen mask first, then what? Then you're able to help those around you. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, go ahead, deal with your own sin first, and then... That frees you up to help those around you. We as a church are called to this. Galatians chapter six, verses one and two. Listen to the way we're supposed to go about helping one another remove the speck. Okay? What does it look like? How does it go? This is what as a church we should aspire to. You ready? Galatians six, one and two. Brothers and sisters... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you feel how, how comprehensive this is? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit of God, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is not saying just ignore the speck. Jesus is saying when we approach one another, we approach one another with gentleness, with love, because we want to help bear the burdens just like Christ did for us. Let me close. And let's draw near to the Lord's Supper. A few few words as we close. Now, after this after this message, we need the gospel. Amen. We need to hear the good news. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the one who will judge the living and the dead. The one who is alive right now, who lives and rules and reigns is calling you to turn from your sins and to trust in him. Jesus promises those who refuse to come to him will face the unmitigated wrath of God forever. But he also promises that anyone who comes to him, he will never cast away. He calls you to seek refuge in him by coming to him and receiving him in the empty hands of faith. He is the one who is able to save us to the uttermost. He is the one who is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and is exalted above the heavens. And yet he is also the one who came into the world to save sinners like us. He bore the judgment we deserve because of our sins in his body on the tree. He died in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserved On Calvary 2,000 years ago. He drank the cup of God's judgment. Down to the last drop. He did that to offer forgiveness. Full and forever. To anyone who would turn and trust in Him. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. My only hope lies in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. None but Jesus Is my plea, mercy flows freely from him like the stream from the fountain or like the sunlight from the sun. If you want mercy? Come to Christ today. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. There's more grace in Christ than sin in you. Flee to him by faith. Jesus demands our trust and Christian, because the savior loves his people with an everlasting love. He has not only spoken words of his love to you, but he also shows us his love in the Lord's Supper. We have a holy ordinance from Christ that proves, that reminds us that he gave himself for us, for, for our, for his church so that our souls might feed on him by faith. So the meal that we're about to eat is a picture, it's a reminder, and it's a promise that imperfect saviors have a perfect savior, imperfect sinners have a perfect savior in Christ. So just briefly, as we go to the supper, let me just remind each one of us what we're doing. This meal, as it were, is a meal of remembrance. We come today in remembrance. We remember that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to God's word, was sent from the Father into the world, that He assumed our flesh and blood, that He bore for us the wrath of God, that He fulfilled for us all the obedience to God's divine law, that even though He is innocent, He was condemned to death so that we might be acquitted before the judgment seat of God. He took upon himself the curse due to us by drinking the cup so that he might fill our cup only with blessings. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might hear the voice of God's acceptance forever. He shed his blood to purchase the new covenant, the eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation. And he says to us, it is finished. It is finished. And so in this supper, Jesus is saying to us, this is my body, which is broken for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We come to this supper also to have communion with this same Jesus that we've been reading about this morning. The same Christ who promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. So in the breaking of the bread, Jesus makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us for all eternity. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the living vine in whom we must abide. But we also come this morning in hope. We don't just look back. We don't just look up. We look forward in hope. We proclaim his death until he comes. We we gather around this table in hope, believing that the bread and the cup are a pledge and a foretaste of the glorious feast that will come to us in the kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth. So under the veil this morning of earthly things, we have communion this morning with the Savior who's in heaven. But with unveiled face, brothers and sisters, there is a day coming in glory when we will be made like him and we shall see him as he is. We shall see him face to face. We shall worship and feast with all of God's people from every tribe and nation and tongue at the, at, the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, brothers and sisters, by his death and resurrection and his ascension, he has obtained for us the life-giving spirit who unites us together as one body. And so we receive this supper this morning in true brotherly love, mindful of the communion we enjoy in the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the Lord Jesus prepared this table for all who love him and for all who trust him alone for our salvation. So if you're a member of this church or if you're a baptized believer and a member in good standing at some other evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that you heard this morning. You're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there. You are more than welcome to take the supper with us this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus or if you have any reason to think it'd be inappropriate for you to take it. Just take these next few minutes and spend time praying or thinking about what we've heard this morning. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So before we take, let's confess our sins together. Would you pray with me? Almighty and most merciful Father, we confess that we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have all offended against your holy laws. We confess that we've left undone the things that we ought to have done. And we have done things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your gracious work in Christ, O Lord, there is no health in us. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people. We acknowledge with great sorrow our many sins, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by our words, by our thoughts, by our deeds. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Miserable offenders, spare all, O God, who confess their faults. Restore all who truly repent according to your promise in Jesus Christ. We do earnestly repent. We are heartily sorry for our wrongs. And remembering them even this morning grieves us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive all that is past. And grant us for the sake that hereafter we may lead a pleasing and holy life. O Lord, forgive us now through Jesus Christ. Amen. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of things that we have done in righteousness, but because of his mercy. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so these elements, otherwise common, are now set apart and sanctified to holy use by the words of Christ and by prayer. It's our custom to take the bread and the cup together as a sign of the unity that we have in the gospel. And so as you eat this bread and as you drink this cup in remembrance that Christ died for you. And as you do so, feed on Christ in your heart by faith. So Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. you pray with me one more time almighty god father of all mercy we your unworthy servants give you humble thanks for all your goodness and all your mercy towards us we bless you this morning for all the blessings that we have received especially the blessing of your immeasurable love in our redemption through the lord jesus christ We pray that you'd give us even this day a remembrance and a knowledge of your unceasing mercies that we might show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but with our lives, that we might give ourselves up to your service and the service of our neighbor. Help us to walk in holiness and righteousness all of our days, knowing that your love and mercy follow us until that day that we are in your house forever. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen. Brothers and sisters, before we sing our final hymn and conclude our service with an acapella version of the doxology. I want you to hear these wonderful words of assurance of your forgiveness of all of your sins in Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.